Some of us have seen real monsters in our lives, and our brains are trying to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together and understand why people can do the things that they do. Nature versus nurture, it's time for true crime therapy. Welcome to the first episode of True Crime Therapy. I was talking to a psychologist a while ago, and we were talking about our brains. We both really were enjoying true crime, and I was telling her, I was like, geez, that's got to be so weird that I'm so into true crime. And she said to me, she said, no, it's because you actually have faced monsters in your life and your brain is trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and make sense of what happened to you and also understand how people can be the way that they are, which has inspired this entire podcast. And so it's time for your true crime therapy. My name is Tess O'Driscoll and let's go and learn about serial killer Israel Keys. First off, I need to start off with that I am absolutely 100% not a licensed therapist. If you need therapy, go to therapy. That's where the therapist shall be. I I am just an extreme true crime enthusiast. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in elementary education. So it's doing all my work and wonders here. Um, I am actually an Enneagram coach known as the Enneagram mom. At the end of the podcast that I can, I will go through and figure out what the Enneagram types are just to help my brain and hopefully others figure out the motives behind the killer. So that I just need to preface with all of that. I also am going to be having a rating scale on each episode. I have a lot of friends who would love to listen to true crime, but only like to listen to um, less intense things. So there's going to be three levels of my podcast. There's going to be mild, medium, and hot. And so this, because we are going to be talking about a serial killer in this episode, this is going to be a hot episode. So there's going to be maybe a little bit more intense details than you'd want in a typical episode. So use caution while listening to this episode, especially around children. Unlike my other podcast, which is the Mystery Kids podcast, which is specifically for children. This one is 100% not for children. Let's get started with some true crime therapy. It was a late night on February 12th, 2012, when this 18-year-old barista, Samantha Koenig, was making coffee for someone that had come to the cute little quaint coffee shop. And they were located in Anchorage, Alaska. So it was night and the man was wearing a ski mask, which is very typical because again, February, Alaska. And so she turns around, is making his coffee. She turns around to give him the coffee when all of a sudden he is pointing a gun at her. He orders her to quickly turn out the lights. She turns around, turns off the lights. He comes into the shop and has her at gunpoint, subdues her, and they get the money and they walk out of the coffee shop together. I'm sure Samantha at this point in time was just thinking that he wanted the money. She was going to do what he said. But as soon as they left the coffee shop, she immediately had just complete dread and terror. And she actually broke free and was able to run from him until he tackled her and was able to take her to his truck that was waiting. 
The man then sends a text using Samantha Koenig's phone to her boyfriend to say, you don't need to come get me tonight. I need to take some time to think about some things. Well, her boyfriend was like, this does not sound like her. They've been dating for a little over nine months. And although they had had a rocky relationship, they were actually working on fixing things. He tells her dad, who they were actually living with at the time, that he had got this strange message. They go to the coffee shop and she is not there. So they eventually call the police and the police call into this coffee shop and ask for video surveillance. This is all happening very quickly compared to a lot of cases. So they go and they look at all the surveillance and come to find this whole scene play out in video surveillance. They see that she was abducted and taken at gunpoint. They start asking the community, does anyone know where she is? Does anyone know what happened to her? And there's nothing that's coming up. Nobody has a clue what has happened to Samantha Koenig. She's just disappeared. A few weeks later, the boyfriend gets a message on his phone saying to go to the local dog park. They go to the dog park with the police and they find out a ransom note. It's got a picture of Samantha next to a newspaper from four days ago. The ransom asks for $30,000 to be deposited in Samantha Koenig's bank account. Money then starts being taken out of her bank account locally at first, and they are always one step behind this killer. They can't seem to get there in time, and he always wears a disguise knowing that there's cameras. But then something strange happens. The next withdrawal does not happen in Alaska. The next withdrawal happens in Arizona. Then another one in New Mexico and another one in Texas. The police are in shock as these withdrawals are happening in these distant places. And the FBI actually figures out what car this person is driving. And someone follows this car, a nice Texas highway patrolman, and a Texas Ranger. They pull over the vehicle and ask for license and registration. Well, he is driving a rental car and the name on his license is Israel Keys and it is from Alaska. They're 100% sure they got the guy. Now, where is Samantha Koenig? They take Israel Keys in for questioning, which he does not want any part in. He actually doesn't really say anything their first meeting. And the second meeting, they come in and they say, look, like we have this evidence. We have you with her debit card. You have her cell phone. Where is Samantha Koenig? And he simply states, you've got your monster. He asked for an Americano a cigar, and a Snickers bar, and says that he will tell them everything. He goes from being really quiet to super chatty. Now, I think if all that it takes for him to talk is a cigar, a Snickers bar, and an Americano, I'm like, what would it take for me to talk? It probably wouldn't take much, because honestly, if I got arrested, I'd be so, so nervous that I'd just start rambling and be like, what do you need to know? I don't even know what happened, but I can tell you anything at this point. I'd just be so, so nervous. But he just like holds his composure. He's like, just bring me the cigar, boys. This is happening. So he tells him the story that he abducted. Samantha. He takes her back to his home to a little shed next to the house. He plays some music, drinks some wine, tells her what's going to happen to her, and he sexually assaults her 
before strangling her to death and then stabbing her. All while his girlfriends and daughter are sleeping in the house next to him. He then, he's got to go back inside and pack up for his two-week cruise that he goes on the next day. So he hides Samantha Koenig's body in a cabinet in the shed and leaves with his girlfriend and his daughter to go on this cruise. How fantastic. He goes from being a cold-blooded killer to the next day just heading out on a cruise with his family, being a family man. Two weeks later, he comes back from his cruise pulls Samantha out, which I mean, she was frozen at the time because it was February again in Alaska. And so he decides he's going to try to get ransom for her because he's noticed that the case is kind of blown up. He's actually been following the case. So he pulls her out of the cabinet. This is a bit graphic. I usually don't like to talk about the graphic stuff unless it pertains to the case. So anyways, he pulls her out. He actually puts makeup on her. He braids her hair like he does his own daughters and he sews her eyelids open so that it looks like she is still alive. He made sure to the photocopy and to overprint these pictures that he sends because he does not want them to be traced back to him. And that's where he goes and places this image in the park and sends the text message to the boyfriend. And I forgot to mention that he also, the same night that he abducted Samantha Koenig, went back to the coffee shop to get her cell phone and to get her ATM card because it got left there. So he already like went back and then he couldn't find part of it. And he had to go back to her house and get in her boyfriend's car to find some of her stuff. And the boyfriend actually sees him, but doesn't really know what's going on. Crazy, just absolute crazy. The risk that this man was taking. So after he gets this picture, he proceeds to dismember Samantha and goes out ice fishing where he places the body into the water, catches some fish to take home for his family to eat. The FBI heads up to the lake where he said that he was, and sure enough, they find Samantha Koenig's body there, which is a sad response because they were truly hoping that Samantha Koenig would be found alive after finding the ransom note. Little does the FBI know that this was not the start of his killings, and it might not have been the end of his killings. Israel Keyes was a calculated serial killer and had been for what he said, 14 years. He had been a totally different person. You could ask anybody and nobody would have a clue that Israel Keyes was capable of this type of violence. At this point, the FBI has confiscated items in his home, his truck, his girlfriend's vehicle at the time. He had actually taken the computer. And in the computer, he was actually using that to look up cases that he was either interested in or had actually crimes he had committed himself. And they had 44 names that they had found on that computer that they were looking through. And some were unsolved and some were potentially solved. Like one of the ones that was on there was Susan Powell, who they strongly believe was killed by her husband. Believe me, I will go into a whole episode about that whole thing. But they believe that some of those victims, because he did follow the Samantha Koenig case so closely, that some of these victims he was looking up had to be his own. 
Israel Keys had a few requests he was making. Um, number one, he wanted the death penalty as soon as possible, not realizing that it's actually quite difficult to get the death penalty. And it's actually not an option in Alaska where he did commit this crime. So we've got that going on where they're like, look, it's going to take a long time for the death penalty to come through. His other request was that his name not be put out there. In fact, he says that he doesn't want to be part of this true crime bullshit. A big reason for that was that he did not want this impacting his daughter. He didn't want his daughter to look up his name and to figure out all these things about him. He didn't want his daughter to know all of this. So he wanted this to be kept from her. So the FBI kept saying, well, you need to give us something else then, because this case isn't a death penalty case. And we promise we will work in complete anonymity for you. We want this to work for you, knowing that Keyes had all the control. Keyes literally said multiple times, I am the only one who knows what happened. And still to this day, he is the only one that knows what happened. So he decides after, you know, another Americana, a Snickers bar and a cigar. Okay, I can give you two bodies and a name. And he then proceeds to tell them about the couriers. Bill and Lorraine Courier lived in Essex, Vermont. He actually picked their home, he says, at random on June 8th, 2011, based off of some criteria. Number one, that the garage was attached to the home, that the car was not parked in the driveway, but was parked in the garage, that the house had no signs of having children or a dog. He said that ever since having his daughter, children were a big no for him. So he proceeded to cut the lines of the phone and then wait to make sure that no security came because sometimes I guess the phone systems were attached to security systems in case they had one. He then proceeded to look at the layout of the home and he broke a window through the garage, was able to use one of their own crowbars he found in the garage to break in through the door and he said he was in the bedroom within five seconds. He called it a blitz attack. He was able to get them down, and in complete control as he began to ransack their house and try to steal anything that was worth value to them. Asking for drugs, which he knew that they weren't drugs. They kept saying, you're at the wrong house. This isn't right. But he wanted to keep them in control as long as possible. He then proceeded to load them up in their own vehicle and he drove away with them. They went to a farmhouse that was abandoned. He actually had figured out that this was the place he was going to take them long in advance. And he had prepared the farmhouse for them to come there. Well, he took the husband down to the basement. When he came back out, Lorraine had actually been able to break free and she was running away. He was able to then tackle her to the ground and he was so mad. He got her back into the house. He tied her up stairs in an upstairs bedroom. He proceeded to then assault them both and he shot the husband in the basement and strangled the wife upstairs. He then took them both into the basement where he put their bodies into bags and poured Drano all over them, trying to get rid of as much evidence as possible. He then took their car, abandoned it in a different area, and left the area. 
So a big reason that he told this story was, number one, he was positive that they were coming to that conclusion all on their own, that they knew that this was going to happen. And the FBI were just waiting for him to talk about it. When in fact, the FBI had no idea that he had any connection to this case. Two, he told them about this case because he made a lot of mistakes that he was not okay with. He did a lot of things that he normally didn't do, and there were a lot of incidences where his victims almost escaped multiple times. So in this case, he kidnapped a couple. It's very different than the Samantha Kona case where he kidnapped one girl took over and overpowered a couple in their own home and took their vehicle. He said what he normally would do was he would get a rental car, drive far away. So it wouldn't even look like he would be in the same area. And this meant hundreds of miles. So he would find a victim in one state kill them in another state, and then hide their body in another state to try to confuse and keep these bodies hidden for as long as possible. This was a very different case because he took them and he actually kept them in the same state and then left their bodies in the actual same place he killed them. This definitely wasn't one of his more collected kills. And another thing he did was after this, he went and did a bank robbery, which he comes to say that he has done a lot of bank robberies over his time. He said that doing a murder would hype him up enough that he could handle having a bank robbery. Another interesting thing about Keys is that he was very calculated and meticulous. So he actually took what's known as a kill kit with all of these weapons, um, the cable ties, the Drano, um, the bags, everything. He'd take these in a big bucket and he would bury them in different places and then he would come back to them years later. So he said that this one that he buried, he actually had put two years before and then came back to use it with the couriers. With the couriers, he flew into Chicago. He drove a thousand miles to Vermont and then he used that kill kit that he had hid two years earlier to perform the murders. The FBI was just floored by this. They had no clue that he had any part in this. In fact, Courier's case had run cold. They had no idea what was happening. So they call up the Vermont police and say, okay, this is what's going on. We can't tell you who, but we can tell you where the bodies are because Israel Keys clearly pointed out the farmhouse. He knew exactly where it was. Well, they go to where this farmhouse is. Finally, they can find a body. And the farmhouse was actually destroyed and everything was taken to a landfill. They actually talked to the people that destroyed it and they said that there was just this horrible smell coming from it and they thought that there was something that had crawled in and died in there. So they just took down the entire house and they took it to a landfill. And this is where they spent over a million dollars looking for the courier's bodies to try to find some evidence and put them to rest. Unfortunately, they were never able to find the couriers and they were never able to put them to rest, but they were at least able to put this case to rest because Israel Keys knew enough about the details of breaking into the home and details about the couriers. They were able to put the case to be closed. When Israel Keys figured out that they could never find a body, he was excited because 
One of the things that Israel Keyes loved the most was missing people. He wanted people to be missing and he wanted them to be gone. He got a thrill off of just being the only person to know what happened to someone. So that was his whole purpose. He would try to take people and he wanted them to be completely gone. He loved the mystery and the thrill of it. So they pry and pry and pry and they try to get more stories from Israel Keys. And unfortunately, he is not talking anymore. Um, his name got leaked to the press. And so everyone started to learn about Israel Keys and he was not happy about it. He wanted no one to know who he was, but it got leaked and everyone began to know who Israel Keys was and what he was capable of. If you listen to the interviews, um, one of the best podcasts on all of this is True Crime Bowl, where they literally took his words of, I don't want it to be part of that True Crime Bowl. Anyways, they literally named the entire podcast after it. Totally fantastic. I would have done the exact same thing. But they have a lot of interviews with him. And one of the police officers, the FBI agents, is sitting there talking to him. And he's like, look, let's give some closure to these families. And he's like, why would I care? He's like, wouldn't the families be better off knowing that their family member just disappeared instead of what I had done to them? And he did not care. He did not want to give closure to people. And he's like, these are mine. And he really felt like he possessed these people and these stories, and he did not want to give away anything. So that's what I find most fascinating about Israel Keys is I feel like normal cases, we have the murders that happen, and we're trying to figure out who the serial killer is. But in Israel Keys case that's totally fascinating is that we have the serial killer, and we're trying to figure out who was killed by him. It's a complete opposite to the typical true crime puzzle. They are able to get some stories from him. He is giving as little as possible, but he starts to kind of talk about what he wants, who he is, how things started. Um, so he specifically lets them know that he has killed four people in Washington, that his first murder was in 1998, and he paused for three years while he was in the army, where he resumed killing in 2001. Um, he talked about that he had at least one murder in New York State in late 2012, and that in New York, he actually had 10 acres of a cabin. So he talks about having bank robberies in New York and Texas. They actually believe that he's linked to a woman named Deborah Feldman, um, who in April 2009 went missing in 2009 in Tupper Lake, New York. But they were never fully able to find out anything thing about that case from him. He just did not want to give as much as possible. So Israel Keys was born in Richmond, Utah on January 7th, 1978. He was born to a large Mormon family. He was actually the second of 10 children born to Heidi Keys and John Jeffrey Keys. And all of him and his siblings were homeschooled. Now this hits 
home to me. I live in Utah. I was raised in a Mormon family. And (laughs) I'm like, oh my goodness, and I homeschool. So there's a lot of connections to my own life in this. And my family's actually from Richmond, Utah. Israel Keys' family was actually part of the FLDS group, which is a break off of the typical, um, what's known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. Um, So they had some very, very different beliefs, but it wasn't long after that his family moved to Colville, Washington, and they rejected everything that they believed, and they actually moved into a one-room cabin without electricity or running water. They went to two different churches at the time, the Ark and the Christian Israel Covenant Church, and they practiced white supremacy. He's later described this group as a militia-like group and similar to the Amish. He actually became friends with a neighboring family of Chevy Kehoe, um, who was later convicted in 1996 for a triple murder. So some serial killers, you know, as children together. Keyes renounced the Christian faith by his teenage years, and he eventually became interested in Satanism. He actually was told that he was not allowed to live with the family anymore when he described that he was an atheist. His father would not have it, and he was kicked out of his home in his late teens. Keyes actually joined the United States Army in 1998 um, and was in the Army till 2001. He was at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and in Egypt. He served really well, actually. He actually was known for being very quiet, but did what he was told and followed commands really well. He was discharged in 2001, where he came home to a girlfriend, which they got pregnant, and they had a daughter October of 2001, where he said that things really changed for him after having a daughter. That's when he didn't want to target children anymore, and he would do anything for his daughter. In fact, he actually eventually got full custody of his daughter because his girlfriend did have some misuse of drugs and different things. So he actually had pretty much full custody of his daughter as she was growing up. In 2007 is when he moves to Alaska to be with his new girlfriend, who he is with until he was caught for um, the kidnapping of Samantha Koenig. He stated many times that he had less than a dozen kills, but that doesn't really add up for 14 years of being a different person. So they think think it was actually more than 11, but to him, his kills that were most important were the ones that happened in the USA. So if he committed any murders while he was in the army, those wouldn't have counted to him. Or if he, which he's alluded to, if it was a Canadian, it didn't count. So there is a huge possibility that he had a lot of murders that he actually committed, but he always said it was under a dozen and they believe that's FBI believes there was only 11, but it's probably false information to try to get people to not look for more of his kills. So while he was being held in the Anchorage Correctional Complex in Alaska, following his arrest and awaiting his trial, 
Keyes actually committed suicide in his cell on December 1st, 2012. He was discovered dead on the 2nd. He had inflicted fatal wrist cuts on himself and performed self-strangulation using a rolled bed sheet. But Keyes left a suicide note, but didn't provide any further information about his victims or his crimes. But he also drew 12 skulls and the word Horizol in his own blood. He actually had a poem which he called the Ode to Death in his suicide as well. There is so, so much to cover. I've actually been listening to hours and hours and hours re-listening to True Crime Bullshits and there is so much to go into, not only to understand his mind and his brain and how things worked for him, but to really understand who could also be another victim of Israel Keys. So what was his MO? Who did he go after? Because at this point, you've heard of all different types of people. The truth was he didn't really have an MO, and that's what made him scary. It didn't matter if it was a man, it was a woman, they were young, they were old. In fact, the only thing he said about having a type was he liked them to be slim, and that was for easy transportation. So he didn't really have a person or a specific thing he was looking for. He said the best way for him was that he would wait for people to come to him. And since he lived next to a lot of national forests, he said he committed many crimes involved in either a parking lot, a national forest, somewhere where it would be least expected. So his first assault that happened, happened in 1997. At this point, he would have been 19 years old. And that's where where he found a girl. He had planned this all out. He found a girl who had been taken from her group. She had been like split up while they were river rafting together. And he took her into a bathroom and sexually assaulted her. At that point, he planned on killing her. And she just kept talking to him and kind of made it personal. And he eventually let her go. And he said for two years, he regretted that decision. And he knew at that point, he was never going to let someone leave again. They believe there was another murder before he went into the military, but they are not sure who it could have been. Israel Keyes also said that when he committed a murder um, and then he usually had a bank robbery in succession, that he was pretty calm for a while after. But you can see that when he got closer and closer and it kept happening, that it was almost like a fix for him. So Samantha Koenig happened and it was not his typical way to go about it. He, he said that when he was smarter, he used to wait for the victim to come to him. He used to make sure that there was no connection. He used to make sure it was far away. And Samantha Koenig definitely did not fit any of that description. Trying to find out who his victims were before all of this is hard, really hard. Um, in fact, in True Crime Bullshit, the way that he did it was he literally would take where he, he had flown, anywhere he had flown, and he would figure out the mileage of his car and draw a circle to see where the area he could have possibly gone to. And then he'd look for missing people that were gone in those areas. It is incredible to see all the research and the work that's gone into it. So I highly, highly recommend this podcast if you are going to look more into this case, 
because they don't believe that Samantha Koenig was his last victim, especially because he says he was starting to spiral and lose control. They actually believe that he had another victim in Texas. So usually when he'd commit a crime, he would turn off his cell phone for a couple days and he would just disappear. Well, this happened. So Samantha Koenig was taken February 1st. And this happened when he went to go visit his family down in Texas. He kind of left his daughter with his mom and he disappeared for a few days. He said on February 13th, he got stuck in the mud and he didn't come back for three days. Well, February 15th, a man named Jimmy Tidwell disappeared which he disappeared in kind of a rural place. His body has never been found. They have no idea what happened to him. It kind of fits Israel's MO. And soon after, he had a bank robbery. Um, Then he went back to his mom, was able to pay her the cash that he owed her. So it really fits his description of what he normally did when he killed somebody. Israel Keys actually said that he was planning on taking someone when he was in Texas originally even before Samantha Koenig. She was kind of like an in-between person when he originally planned on taking someone in Texas. But he never specifically said that he took someone in Texas. He was trying to keep everything as close as possible to him. Because remember, he felt like his victims were part of him, that they he possessed them. And that's why he wanted them to go missing and be completely gone. There's many people that have tried to make connections to different cases throughout different episodes. Crime Junkies actually has an episode where they try to see if um, Israel Keys fits a certain case, but it is all absolutely fascinating. This man was highly highly methodical in the way that he did things. He was extremely patient in his beginning years of what he said was the beginning of his career with quotation marks around that because like this is not a career no one no one go do this this should not be a hobby but this is what he did but Israel at home was a totally different person he was an extremely hard worker he started his own construction company he made great money at it he was not just going off and killing people all the time. He was building things, creating things. He built homes. He was known for the work he did and his community knew him, knew him as someone loyal, hardworking, trustworthy. His daughter knew him as a wonderful father. His family loved him. He had an extremely different personality. And I think that's what makes Israel Keys so strange is that he had a whole community that rallied around him and that cared for him and loved him. And he showed love and affection to his daughter and his girlfriend and his family and those around him, which normally when we think of a serial killer, we're thinking of someone isolated, someone who is not great with people, um, someone that lacks social skills. For Israel Keyes, this just simply wasn't the case. He had incredible social skills. He was able to work closely with people. I mean, even able to live in the same home with other people and truly hide this whole identity of himself. He said at a very young age, he recognized that his thoughts were different from others. He thought that everyone either thought like him and that they were just lying to keep up this ruse of like, oh, yes, we're just good people, especially because he was raised in such a religious way Um, or that he just was weird 
Um, he remembers taking out, I guess, some neighbor friends. And his sister had a cat that was bugging him. So he took it out and he actually shot this cat. And he looked over and his neighbor friend was throwing up. And that was the first time he realized and recognized like, oh, I can't act this way around other people. He recognized not that he needed to change his behavior because it was wrong. He recognized he needed to hide those behaviors because other people construed them as wrong. So he learned this as a young child, that his behaviors were not normal, his thoughts were not normal, and his desires were not normal. So he proceeded to hide them. Um, He had a lot of confusion with religion, which makes sense. He was raised in an extremely religious family. Um, He was homeschooled and hidden kind of from the world, sheltered from the correct way to act around people. And I'm not, believe me, 100% not saying this about homeschoolers. My kids are extremely socialized because, I mean, they talk to me all day long. Um, And we do have a lot of friends we get together with. This is just a really bad case of homeschool. But at the same time, if this was the perfect ideal, right? If this is the perfect way, which he, he does not say he was really abused as a child by his parents. I'm wondering if it's more of a Ted Bundy thing that he kind of glorifies his childhood a little bit, but he had a great relationship, especially with his mom, but he, he says all these great and wonderful things about his childhood. He was homeschooled, isolated, but he was not abused. And if you think about it, if this was the perfect scenario, right, if this was it to make a serial killer, why didn't all of his siblings, his nine other siblings, why didn't they all become serial killers? So I think a lot of it comes from nature. Um, Usually we see some, so we saw some of the triad. I mean, he was killing animals, Um, but We don't see one thing, which is that they hit their head, which can affect some of that like lobe. Again, not a scientist here, Um, but it can affect the way that they think, um, which I am absolutely fascinated in as well. If that's the case, that they have like a brain injury and how that works with then proceeding to complicates the way that they view the world. So uh, there's no proof that he had a head injury and he remembers thinking these thoughts. So it's really interesting to hear his side of it and saying like, I knew that these thoughts were wrong. I just kind of kept going with them. It's almost, it kind of reminds me of an addiction where you just need a little bit, you just need a little bit and you start getting out of control, right? With an addiction. This is almost like an addiction, but it's like, there's, there's like a turnoff switch for him. That's what blows my mind about him. There's this, he, he said, cause they would say like, well, would you just meet people and be like, Oh, I can't kill this one. And he's like, well, there was just people that I knew I had like, he could have a relationship with as in not like just uh, like a marriage or whatever, but he would meet people and he would be able to separate that in his mind. They would be, they wouldn't be like, Oh, this one could be a potential victim or this one would, he said that he just look at people and be like, Oh yeah, I can like, I'd just be normal with them. That wouldn't even make sense. Why would I kill somebody that I'm having just a conversation with? Doesn't make any sense to him. And so how, how did he have these switches and be able to just turn them on and off? So one way that I try to understand serial killers, well, 
pretty much everyone, um, is type them by their Enneagram. So if the Enneagram is new to you, um, I have the Enneagram mom podcast where I go into each type. It's basically a personality test that's extremely accurate. Although I do not recommend the test. If you are trying to figure out your own, just listen to my podcast about each of the types. Um, this is something you have to figure out for yourself because it's based off of internal motivation. So knowing his internal motivation would be extremely helpful if I could have a conversation with him. I don't know if I would, would I maybe, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange obsession. I, if you, if you're here, you probably understand, but I have really looked into and tried to figure out his specific type. One of my favorite podcasts is called Killer Personalities. So they actually took in their first season, they took serial killers and tried to figure out their Enneagram types. Absolutely loved it. Highly recommended it. And they actually took Israel Keys and they deduced that he was a type one. So a type one is motivated by being good. They have a fear of being bad. Um, type ones have a personality that is somewhat of a perfectionist. They want things to be a certain way. Um, and they are very detailed, meticulous. Um, they have plans in advance. They like for things to be highly organized, which is very similar to Israel Keys. So I really enjoyed listening to come to this idea. Um, my idea since listening to true crime bull and all, I mean, I have read his book. I have or the book about him. He didn't write it. Um, I have listened to almost everything I could cause he just fascinates me. Um, the idea I came up with is I believe he is an Enneagram six, which is known as the loyalist. Um, Tess, how can he be an Enneagram six, a loyalist when he is a serial killer? Well, every single Enneagram type one through nine can be healthy or unhealthy. Um, the thing I see in him, so definitely serial killers are on that unhealthy size. Um, the thing I see from him is how loyal he really was, especially to his daughter. He was extremely loyal to her. Another thing that Enneagram sixes can be is they can usually follow people. Um, there's the type that can follow people blindly, like they can follow a religion or a faith blindly, or they can be exact opposite where they believe that everyone's trying to coerce them. Um, they're looking for people to kind of fail them. And I can see that side of him a lot. Um, a six basic fear is being without support or guidance and their desire is to have security and support. A thing that I can see with Israel keys, um, he's part of me thinks that he's not being this detail oriented because he likes to be detail oriented. I think it's to keep himself as safe as possible. He wants to not get caught. That's his ultimate goal. So I think there's this safety and security that he has in mind and he wants himself to be safe. He wants his girlfriend to be safe. He wants his daughter to be safe. And so he's trying to figure out these ways to keep his inner circle safe. So he 
really is fighting against some of his own insecurities and anxiety inside of himself. They have a big fear of being abandoned or left without support. Um, they just, they lack some self-confidence. Um, and that means sometimes they can actually come across as even more confident. Um, you know how some people, when they are lacking confidence, they seem too cocky and confident. Um, I believe that's something that Israel comes across as is he's lacking that confidence. So he's trying to find it in himself. These people actually can be very organized um, because they are trying to plan ahead for specific situations to happen. So let's look at this unhealthy six. So a typical, like just an average level, which I'm getting this from the Enneagram Institute, an average six um, resists having more demands made on them. They react against others passive aggressively. They become evasive, indecisive, cautious, procrastinating, ambivalent, and are highly reactive, anxious, and negative, giving contradictory mixed signals. Um, they're internally confused to makes them react unpredictably. So that's an average, which most of us in the world live in an average to above average to maybe like a healthiest level, which I mean, a healthy level six, they become self-affirming. They trust themselves. They're independent. They're symbolic. Um, they have self-expression. So that's a healthy six. So if we look now at this unhealthy six, so most of his life, they fear that they've ruined their security. They become panicky, volatile, and self-disparaging with acute in inferiority feelings. They see themselves as defenseless. They seek out stronger authority or belief to resolve all their problems. They're highly divisive, disparaging, and berating to others. So I can see a lot of that in him, especially as he's starting to unwind. Um, one thing it says in the lower average six is that they are fearful of authority. They're highly suspicious and conspiratorial. Um, so they they have these fears that are silencing their own fears. So they're looking for more. So I feel like I can see that a lot in him is he is he feels persecuted. He feels different than other people. And so this is when he's either reaching out to Satanism, um, which I think he did for a time to try to understand. And then I think he turned to atheism because you can't be a Satanist and an atheist because an atheist just completely rejects God, which means that you would have to completely reject Satan, right? That's their, they're kind of, they all in one, they tie together. Um, so he just completely becomes anti God, anti any of this. But if he was in this Satan plan, he believed he was kind of working for Satan or doing things for Satan. Then later on, he was just like, you know, I'm just going to become an atheist and cut this all off. And then it doesn't matter because I'm not answering to Satan. I'm not answering to God. I'm not answering to anyone because I don't believe any of it. And so I believe that his atheism is a way that he was trying to disconnect because I think for a long time he tried to make sense of all of it. I mean, as, as young children, that's what we do, right? We're trying to make sense of the world, make sense of what's taught and then how it's being interpreted in our minds. And so for him, I believe that he, he tried to go to the extreme, the opposite. And then he just kind of tried to go to this neutral place 
because he did feel defenseless. Um, this was such a major part. And in fact, he was kicked out of his family for a long time because of this. So let's look at the lowest to the very, very unhealthy he can be, which if you think that's when he's spiraling around the Samantha Koenig time period. So they become hysterical. They seek to escape punishment. They become self-destructive and suicidal. They have alcoholism, drug overdoses, self-abasing behavior. Um, they generally correspond to passive aggressive and paranoid personality disorders. Um, I can definitely see this because in the end, he did pretty much self-destruct. He got himself in this position where he was not, I guess, playing safe in his own terms. And alcoholism was a very big part of his life in later years. So for me personally, I think he was an Enneagram six with the wing of a seven, which the wing of a seven is more fun, playful, but they're also very reactive and they don't think about things before they do them. But that's my own. And I would love to hear anyone else's interpretation and have conversations about it. Again, this is why I started an entire podcast, because for me, he doesn't make any sense. And that's it. Even reading like articles, listening to everything I've listened to. I mean, I've poured hours and hours. This is the second time I've listened to true kind bullshit. I am fascinated with him. And it's because he doesn't make sense. And the thing is, he doesn't make sense to the FBI either. He doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And he doesn't, I guess, follow the the normal serial killer guidelines. But again, I don't know if there's any normal serial killer guidelines. But I, I'm trying to make sense with everything I've seen in my own life. And I know if you're here, you've probably seen some darkness too, and you're trying to understand things. I want to make sense. Okay. So how did, how did Israel Keys come out of this? I believe that he did have a lot of tendencies that he was leaning into and the isolation of his childhood, the extreme religious fanatic, um, which his parents did go back and forth between churches a lot. And then he also did have this white supremacist, racist, different upbringings that he was having. Um, I do believe that those really contributed to him becoming the way he was, um, where he did have the tendencies at first and then his um, situations and his lifestyle did contribute to it. It's hard to say, right? What, what came first, the chicken or the egg, but I believe he did have some things. And I also truly do think he was hiding a lot of things that probably happened in his youth um, to make him the way that he was, whether it was, um, homosexual tendencies, um, that especially in an extreme religious culture would not be heard of, um, trying to pin down what could make Israel keys the way he was, because he did have the opposite characteristics as well. He did show love and caring and tenderness to, his family that he loved. 
So I would love to hear your takes. Um, make sure you're following us on True Crime Therapy on Instagram, truecrimetherapy.com. I will have pictures from Israel Keys. I also will have each episode like a character guideline so you know who is in each episode because some episodes get a little bit fuzzy, along with additional resources because that's for me. I want to dive deeper into the cases. So I'll have additional podcasts, books, and documentaries all linked in there, as well as the resources I use to figure out everything for this podcast. So now that I've thought about it for, you know, like a whole half an hour while talking, um, what would I, what would it take for me to talk? What would be my vices that I'd ask for if I couldn't have anything? Um, I, (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know. Um, I would, Ask for some raisinets. I love chocolate covered raisins, although I can't have them anymore because I have a dairy intolerance. Um, so that would be horrible. Nope, I'm not asking for that. Um, probably a Dr. Pepper. I would need some true crime. Like I listen to it all day long. I would, if I was stuck somewhere, even in jail with people, I I would need some true crime. Like, yeah, probably my Kindle as well to make sure I could have books to read. Cause yeah. And to keep my hands busy, probably some cross stitching. Yep. I am just uh, a middle age uh, girl who loves her Dr. Pepper and cross stitching. Oh, man, I I don't ask for much in life. Anyways, I'd love to know what would be the three things that you would ask for if you if you could tell anything. I would really love to know this. Um, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you for your next appointment at True Crime Therapy.